In Christ you have his righteousness, so you're righteous. In Christ you have an inheritance in the future because you've been brought into the inheritance of, the, of God the Son, Jesus Christ. He was telling us everything that is ours. You were dead, but now you're alive. You, you were strangers to the covenants of God, but now in Jesus Christ you've been turned into a temple of Jew and Gentile. And he was telling us all about our identity, first three chapters. Since the beginning of chapter 4, he has been focusing in on the walk that we live in, the way that we behave, the way that we walk in light of our identity. This is going to be the sixth sermon on this, uh, on this part of the, of the book about how we ought to be walking since we are those who are identified as in Christ. So from chapter 4, verse 17, the last few sermons, we've learned... <clears throat> That we should not uh, walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And he gave us so many helpful and practical examples. He said down in uh, uh, verse 25, he said, stop lying and start speaking the truth. He said, stop being angry and sinning and be angry without sin. He said, stop corrupting each other with speech and speak in ways that upbuild. He said, stop stealing and instead be generous. Stop tearing down and instead build up. Stop grieving the Holy Spirit. Stop allowing bitterness and wrath within you become anger and malice among you, uh, but instead be kind to one another. In chapter 5, verse 3, he said he commanded against sexual immorality and lusts and greed, which he called idolatry. He said that we should not walk as those who are children of darkness when in fact we are children of light. And he said that we need to expose both our own sins and the sins of our brothers and sisters by bringing the word of God to shine light onto our lives and repenting from it by waking up and arising from the dead and Christ will shine on you. That was verse 14. It's as if Paul has so far been speaking, since chapter 2, he, he said we're born into Christ. We're these new creations in Christ. And I've kind of thought about it as if most of chapter 4 was Pastor Paul speaking to a teenage Christian church. Which is true, because Ephesus is literally only about 10 years old as a church at this point. But, but the, the kind of way that he's been having to speak to them is like a responsible father speaks to a teenage son or daughter. And it's mostly, no, you can't do that. It's, it's been, no, you can't do that with your body. And no, you can't wear that. And no, you can't drink that. And no, you can't. And that's what a father, a fathering teenagers is often like. Because we come up, when we are teenagers, with just idiotic, suicidal, ridiculous, sinful, godless ideas to do. And, and so constantly the father is, no, no, no. But at some point, this is the hope for any parents of children and teenagers, at some point, they get, uh, usually for gals at about 16 to 18 and about for guys somewhere between the years of 35 and 70, they get responsible. And what they do in those years is that they stand, instead of asking, can I do this, can I do this, can I do all these evil things, they rather start turning and going, how can I be mature? How can I take responsibility? How can I be a praiseworthy woman? Or for the sons, how can I be the man that God made me to be? And the mindset changes. Instead of having to pull on the leash and keep them back from sin, they're actually turning around and asking, Dad, Mom, show me wisdom. Show me maturity. What can I do? And it's, it's as if the, the tone changes at this point in Ephesians 5, and it kind of feels like this. He's not merely talking against all of the sins, He's rather talking at this point, here's what full-fledged maturity looks like in a believer. And he's going to give it to us in two main ways. He's going to talk about wisdom, 
and he's going to talk about being filled with the Spirit. And this is, this is really just reflecting the Jewish wisdom literature of Paul's day that he would have been taught growing up. And of course, the Jewish literature that we find in our Bible, the wisdom literature of Job, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, and Proverbs, and things like that. He's going to tell us to be mature, you need, the wis- you need wisdom, and to be mature, you need the Holy Spirit. So let's read. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 through to 21. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. May God bless this word in our midst this evening. Amen. Amen. Now, now, first of all, the question is, uh, uh, how do I be mature? And Paul's first answer surround, uh, 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 rotates around the idea of wisdom. So we see this in verse 15 to 17. And the first thing that wisdom does, as we see in verse 15 there, is wisdom is careful. Wisdom is intentionally taking care, and it is extremely watchful. Paul will say this in Ephesians 6, be watchful and stand firm. He will say this in 1 Corinthians 16, be watchful and stand firm. Wisdom knows that drifting always takes you downstream away from godliness. Wisdom knows that the second you take your foot off the pump, as soon as your foot comes off the the pedal of godliness and effort and discipline and prayer and reading the Bible, wisdom knows that it only ever drifts downward, right? It's the fool who thinks money grows on trees. It's the fool who thinks that water flows uphill. It's the fool who thinks that, 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 that Satan is a gentleman and, does, and you know, wants to respect your freedoms. And it's the fool that thinks that, uh, that, that, that drifting will not have too hard of a, 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 an effect on your life. Fools think, according to Proverbs, fools think that gardens weed themselves. They don't know how the world works. They don't know that in a cursed world, everything tends and trends in its natural inclination towards chaos, godlessness, and sin. And that's true of our spiritual life. It's the wise man who has who taken, taken heed of what the Bible says, knows himself or herself, and knows the world around us, and knows, therefore, that if there will be any good done in my spiritual life, if I'm going to be mature, I will have to be watchful. I can't drift. You always drift away from godliness. I can't be be passive. I will always be led astray. Wisdom knows that sin is easy and godliness is very difficult and so it is careful how they walk. Wisdom, according to Proverbs 2, seeks intently for things that are valuable. Listen to what Proverbs 2 says, since we're all about wisdom tonight. Proverbs 2, verse 1 and following says, My son... If you accept my words and store up my commands within you. Listen to all of the urgent words here. The desperate words. And you store up my commands within you. If you listen closely to wisdom. And by directing your heart to understanding. Furthermore, if you cry out to insight. And if you lift up your voice to understanding. 
If you seek it like silver, and if you search for it like hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord brings wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. Wisdom knows that valuable things in life take effort and they require mining. Valuable things are valuable because they're hard to get and they're very rare. And as, the value, and as the Bible tells us that wisdom is valuable, we are then to recognize that what, is, what comes easy is cheap and dangerous. If you are not careful, if you are not intent, if you are not seeking godliness intently and carefully and stringently, then you will get what is easy and cheap, which is godlessness, folly, and laziness. So, wisdom, which... Gets a godly life, a godly walk, and a good testimony for outsiders. Wisdom is intent and intense in its intent in listening to instruction and godly advice from the Word of God. So, so first step of wisdom is to walk carefully. Now, the second part of wisdom uh, is here for us in verse 16 and 17. Uh, sorry, at the end of verse 16. He says, make the best use of the time because the days are evil. <laughs> The second part of wisdom is being able to discern the times. Now, you don't need a lot of wisdom. You just need a little bit of wisdom to know that the days are evil. If you think that right now all the enemies of God have been brought down and we're in the zenith of the kingdom of Christ and basically Satan has no more effects or, 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 or works in this world whatsoever and here we are, where this is heaven, everybody, ladies and gentlemen, congratulations you got here. If you think that way, you have no wisdom. You don't have a trickle of it. Well, well it only takes a little bit of wisdom and we need to improve on it, but we need to understand that days are evil. Of course, in the Roman Empire, as Paul is imprisoned for preaching the gospel and he's writing to the Ephesians, it's true in their day, and hello, it's true in our day. The days are evil. The stuff they celebrate, the things they promote, and then the things that they censure and cut down, these are evil days. But that's not all that it says, because the third part of living wisely is living productively in evil days. So it says, make the best use of the time because the days are evil. If you're able to be productive in evil days, then you have wisdom and you avoid the two alternate sins, and they rhyme, so I hope you remember this because I, 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 I put a lot of effort into this. If you discern that the days are evil, you still have the option of falling into one of two sins, the sin of stumbling or the sin of grumbling. The sin of stumbling is the sin that says the days are very evil, but I tell you what, evil's pretty fun. And I'm going to go to heaven one day, and the world will pass away, and so I better drink up as much of this world as I can get. I better, I, I, I better uh, hold the gospel for myself because I want my soul to go to heaven instead of hell, but while everybody else is going to hell, their girls are dressed awful nice, and so I will spend lots of time with them and chasing them. And even though I myself uh, I, I believe the gospel and I, I will be saved, so I hope, I need to just give up these ideas of purity until marriage and, and, and of self-control in a pornographic age. I mean, all of these things are unrealistic. The days are evil. I'm pessimistic about it. I won't be a manly man. It's far too hard. I won't be a godly woman and chaste in my behavior. That is far too hard. I won't start a family. It's too much stress. There's too much travel to be done and too much money to make. I won't be committing to a church. I'll just do church online. Not true. I will just go to church online and have a churchless Christianity. 
That's what these people who stumble, it's as if they know that the days are evil and they go, well, what are you going to do? And jump headlong into the river of sin. Don't be that person. That's what everything so far from chapter 4 has been telling us. If you are in dark days, do not live like darkness. If you are in dark days, and he told us back in verse 8, then live as children of light because you are light in the Lord. What the evil days need is some light. That's one way that we can sin, is stumbling in evil days. But the other way we can sin in evil days is by grumbling. And this is when we look around and we romanticize the past. And we say, oh, the good old days. You know, when everybody went to church. And, you know, and when, uh, uh, when, when the youths were more responsible. And women didn't wear pants in church. You know what I mean? The good old days. And when, when the drugs weren't running our streets. And, and the good old days. And you, and you fancify, uh, fan, fantasize and romanticize an imaginary past. And when you think of, you, you know, just look out on the world and say, you know, the, the, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. The tyrants are ruining the world. Uh, you know, everything's the government's fault. Every second grumble on your lips is the World Economic Forum. Disney went gay, you know. There's a war on men. There's vitriol against femininity. What's the point? It's hard to raise a family. Finances are going down through the, through the, through the drain. Don't rearrange the furniture because this ship is sinking. The West is under God's judgment. Give up on her. The Antichrist is around the corner. The tribulations are coming, are coming. And this goes against verse 16, which says, In evil days, redeem the time. I agree, the days are evil. There's a lot of judgment going on. There's a lot of hell in a handbasket behavior going on around us. But Paul's command is to redeem the time. Make the best use of the time because the days are evil. Friends, if you look around and see the darkness of the world, your motivation should be to give it a little light and to be the light in a dark and dying world. Walk as children of light. And and according to verse 17, both stumbling into sin in an evil day and both grumbling about sin in the evil day, both of these fail against verse 17, which tells us, Do not be unwise, sorry, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. When Paul says Lord, he almost always means Jesus. In other words, Paul's saying, don't stumble into sin, walk as children of light. Don't grumble about the way of the world, make the best use of the time. Understand what the will of the Lord is, don't be fools. If you're stumbling into sin and you're making excuses for it, you're acting the fool. If you're just sitting down and complaining about the world, you're acting the fool. You need to understand what the will of the Lord is, and that's not very difficult because we know exactly what Jesus, our Lord's behavior and mindset about the world is. It's very simple. What did Jesus do when he looked down and discerned an evil, evil day in the world? Did he stand far back from it? Did he disengage from it? Did he give up on it? No, he came down into it and lived as one of us and walked in a dark day as light and walked in an evil day as righteousness. That's what Jesus did. And then when Jesus was here on earth, did he, did he stumble into sin and, and enjoy the, the, the flesh in this life? No, he did not. He remained pure and undefiled and sinless and commanded us to do the same. He showed us you can be in the world and for the world all the while not being of the world. That is an expectation. And then, on the other hand, did Jesus grumble? 
Did he just complain and find a porch to kick back on? He was a carpenter. Did he build himself a porch and build himself a hammock to just go and swing around on and grumble and complain until God the Father ascended him up out of this world because he'd given up on it? No. He taught the light. He spoke the truth. He spread the light of God in the dark and evil day and commanded us to do the same. What about when he left? Did Jesus, having accomplished grace, did he then go up and somehow live in a party and, and, and go and uh, stumble into sin again? No. Now, having accomplished grace, he maintained his purity and went into heaven. But on the other hand, did he grumble? Like, did he, did he sit around those days after his resurrection, just peeved off at Peter, that piece of work, and, and just, just disgusted at the other disciples that ran off from him, and, and just sick of this whole humanity. The, the, the best 12 of them that he could train and give powers, you know, they all ran away from him. They're, not, they're just not worth it. And, and here he is just grumbling back on his porch, waiting for God to get rid of him, waiting till he could go up to heaven and leave this filthy world behind. Was that his mindset? No. No, when Jesus left the world, he wasn't leaving us. He wasn't leaving earth. He was going up to sit on the throne over the cosmos. He didn't, he didn't step away from the world. He went up to rule the world, to redeem the world. And from there, he sent his Holy Spirit to bring to the, the, the church to life. From there, Ephesians 4 tells us, he sent down gifts to, to us, his saved people, so that we could serve him by carrying the gospel. He spoke his commission to his disciples so that we can make disciples of the nations. We are at no point allowed to stumble into sin just because it's an overwhelming evil day. And we are not allowed to grumble about evil just because it's an overwhelming evil day. But like Jesus, love the world, live for the sake of the world, to seek and save that which is lost in the world. Live as children of light. That is the command of Jesus Christ. That's what verse 17 means. Don't be fools. Don't cry about it. Don't grumble about it. Don't give into it. Instead, take heart, because it is the Father's good pleasure to give to you the kingdom, Jesus said. Engage it with the light, with truth, and by the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ is right now as hands-on as he could possibly be in this world. He is as hands-on as is possible, as he, as he is Lord of history, engaging it with every which way he can to bring about his perfect purposes for the universe. So who do we think we are giving up in our sin? Who do we think we are giving up in grumbling? We have been transformed by Jesus as new creations in Christ. We are adopted as children in Christ. We are empowered by the Spirit in Christ. We have been given the light of Christ. And we are now enlisted as soldiers for Christ. That is our injunction. Wisdom walks carefully. It discerns the times. And then it lives productively. Here's, here's a part of living productively. I, I thought of it this way. <coughs> while, while wisdom will, will live missionally and productively and folly will, will give up because the days are so evil, the language that Paul uses here is, is, is uh, uh, make the best use of the time. Another version might, of uh, your versions might say uh, redeem the time. I think the good millennial translation would be flip the time, right? Here's the examples. Maybe some of the Young wives are, are just going through this phase in their marriage and the husbands are bearing with them. You're on Facebook Marketplace and you see a $20 rundown cupboard and what you do is you buy it for $20 and shove it in your husband's tiny little sedan and make him hockey strap it dangerously, drive it on the highway home. You paint it for about uh, an hour and put $20 worth of paint on it and then you resell it 
for $750 to snobs that live in Ascot. That's what you do. That's called flipping furniture. Okay, you, you take something dodgy, you give it a lick of paint, you sell it upscale, that's flipping things. And, and that's entrepreneurial spirit that Paul is recommending us in a spiritual sense. Are you in evil days? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Is it really hard to come up with opportunities? Absolutely. Is it going to take wisdom to be able to be productive in these kind of days? Absolutely. Well, God promises you that wisdom, so get to work. I remember there was a guy who uh, was a mate of mine, and he lived in the city and worked in the city, and he wanted to be able to make some more money on the side, but he had no room in this tiny little apartment. The biggest space that he had in one room was his garage down on the first floor, and it wasn't even uh, uh, all that much. So he realized what he could do in a difficult situation was that he could start posting onto the internet his parking space for sale. And people would give him $40, $30 to use his, 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 his car park for a weekend. And I thought that was pretty smart. He has very few, it, literally all he has is empty space. And he's able to sell empty space. And then it was pretty funny, like a month later, somebody made an app about that, about rent. It's like Uber for car, car parks. And he went completely out of business. Nonetheless, the, the principle stands firm. God wants us to be sort of entrepreneurial. Maybe you have that friend that can make money in any given situation. COVID hit, they came up with a whole new way to make money. Uh, they get fired from one job, that's okay. They've got another way to flip the industry and work it on the side here. And Paul wants us to be like that in the spiritual state of the day. Is it difficult? Yes. Is it going to take wisdom? Absolutely. But we can be productive. I've got seven steps here, seven notes that I'm not expecting you to keep up with me and write them all down. It's being recorded and you can go and grab them later. But I've got seven steps here, some of which I stole from Jonathan Edwards, some of which I stole from John Calvin. The rest I came up with and I reworded them all so they're all originally mine. Seven steps towards redeeming the time in evil days. First of all, Withdraw entirely from things that have numbing, dulling, and distracting effects. Withdraw entirely from mind-numbing activities, like binging TV, like drunkenness and drugs, like mind-numbing video games, like social media swiping and swiping and swiping. Remove those things from your life, those things which have a brain-numbing effect. Secondly, Minimize activities that have pure entertainment value and no productive value. I'm not saying get rid of them entirely, rest and entertainment is good, but minimize as much as you can those things which are pure entertainment and zero productivity. This would be things like going to the movies, watching TV series, playing video games, parties and dancing, social media, none of them evil in themselves in good measure, but be careful to minimize them if they are for pure entertainment, then leave them only sections of life that are uh, given for entertainment rather than overtaking your life. Thirdly, avoid activities that absorb the most time if they aren't for important things like income, family, and church mission. This is simply very practical. You each go home, look at your calendar, look at your schedule. I hope you've got one in some app, some form, some poster, something, some way that you divvy up your time and you just look at those things which are taking up the most time. And you ask, is this for my income, which I'm commanded to try and do. As Paul said, work hard with my own hands so I don't have to rely on people. Or is this for my family because I, I need to spend time building the relationship of my family. Or is this for church missions? Now, if it's not one of those things and it's taking up enormous amounts of time, it's probably bordering on useless. And so seek to remove those from your calendar so that you increase your time. Fourthly, 
minimize activities that put you at risk of sin and temptations. Now, some of us work in places where it's, it's very difficult. Some of us, are, uh, uh, there, there's certain areas which are non-negotiables. We just have to put up with the fact that sin and temptation are nearby. But at least all of us can do some degree of further shaving off and minimizing ourselves voluntarily being put in situations that are increasing temptation and potential sin. If we want to redeem the time in evil days and not stumble into sin, then minimize activities that put you at those risks. Number five, maximize activities that are productive for the Great Commission. Maximize activities that are productive for the Great Commission, like evangelism, ministries in the church, missions overseas, meeting with unbelieving friends to win them to Jesus Christ. That is very simple. Fill the extra parts of your calendar with mission for Jesus Christ. Sixthly, redeem your downtime. Some of you take long bus rides, bike rides, car rides to work, uni, church, a week, multiple times a day sometimes, where instead of listening to music or random podcasts or, or strange radio stations, you could be using them to listen to lectures, listen to, listen to Bible audio, listen to sermons and debates. You could, be, you could go to seminary. If you have, I'll tell you this, if you have 40 minutes in, uh, of driving uh, to work and home from work every single day, you can do the entire lecture uh, a bulk of the equivalent of a bachelor in theologies within a year and a half. I know because I did it. You can listen to this entire thing on RTS app. Redeem your downtime. Or, or maybe you have a lot of waiting time in your job. Use those. Have, have some soft version of a book or ways that you can maximize. So use your lunch breaks in order to evangelize or catch up on, on ways to serve others. Redeem the downtime. I don't know what it looks like for you. I don't want to be legalistic and tell people what you must do. But redeem your downtime. And then seventhly, prioritize time with Christians more mature than you. This is to come back to that, that proverbial wisdom that Paul is talking about. Come back and try and maximize time around a table, around a coffee, uh, sitting with their kids and your kids. Do what you can to sit with the Christians more mature than you. Seek to, to sit underneath the torrent of wisdom that they just pour out about things that you are currently struggling with. Mine their experience like gold and silver that you are looking for. As Proverbs 1 tells us, that wisdom is to give prudence to the simple. If you feel pretty simple, keep on making silly mistakes. Wisdom is for you to give you prudence. Or to give knowledge and discretion to the youth. If you feel young and you're making young person mistakes, sit underneath the wisdom of an older person as they give you discretion. Verse 8 says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. Some of us have, have Christian mothers and fathers, and it's like sitting under a waterfall of wisdom. Do that often. Some of us have Christian mothers and fathers, and it's like sitting under a leaky tap of wisdom do that only sometimes. Some of us don't have Christian parents at all, and we need to find spiritual parents in the congregation that we can sit under and glean wisdom from and experience and discernment. This is what wisdom does. Wisdom produces maturity in the Christian life. It, 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 it is careful how they walk. It is discerning of the times, and it is redeeming of the evil days as much as possible. So that's the first part of, of Paul's uh, uh, admonition tonight. Be wise, seek wisdom, do not be unwise or foolish. And then secondly, he moves to the spirit. 
These are, these are common uh, uh, interactive themes in Jewish Hebrew wisdom literature. Wisdom and spirit. The wisdom of God, the spirit of God working together. And so he does it tonight. He said, be filled with wisdom in those ways. And tonight he's also telling us, be filled with the spirit in the following ways. <clears throat> he says in verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. There are... There is one similarity between getting drunk and being filled with the Spirit, and the rest is all contrast. The one similarity is that when you are drunk on wine or any other alcohol, it takes you into an altered state. It's still you. You're still responsible. You can still be arrested and charged for what you do while drunk. You're not puppeted by another person. It is you, but in an altered state. And the same is the fact with the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's you. You're still making decisions and obeying God, and yet you're in, if we can use this language, an altered state. In other words, you have, you have heightened sensitivity to God. You have heightened desires and zeal for obedience. You have, a, you have a heightened, altered obedience to the law of God. When you are drunk, however, here's where the differences come in. When you are drunk, you are losing control. When you are filled with the Spirit, you have the fruit of self-control. When you are drunk, you waste time. When you have the Holy Spirit, you redeem the time in obedience. That's what, that's what this word debauchery means in verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Debauchery can mean sensuality and, and, and a sex party and this filthy, disgusting waste of time. But the emphasis of the word, your version might have dissipation. The, the real essence of the word is a waste of time resources and life. Can you imagine maybe walking into a, into a drug den and people are off their faces and, 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 and missing calls from concerned parents and, and this, this horrible thing to behold, that kind of thing is what should be thought of in the word dissipation and debauchery. There is a, it, is, it, is a, it is a draining of human resource time and energy and that is the idea of debauchery, that when we are getting drunk, we're wasting time. When we are filled with the Spirit, we are using time to obey the Lord Jesus on this earth. And he's, he's addressing the idea of wine and alcohol, and it does mean all alcohol. Other portions of the Bible say strong drinks, so I've heard people argue that it just says wine, says nothing about vodka, tequila, rum, or single malt scotch. Bad arguments, okay? It says strong drink, that's what it counts as. Wine, strong drink, any kind of alcohol. The reason Paul, I think, uses this as he's speaking to the Ephesians is because in Ephesus, there was a Gentile frequent activity of, of a way of growing close to their gods in worship. A way of sort, of sort of accessing the divine presence was through an altered state, sometimes drugs, sometimes smoking different things, and sometimes alcohol. There was a cult of Dionysius who was worshipped frequently in Ephesus, and they believed that as you get drunk, you open yourself up to the influence of Dionysius. So maybe in Ephesus, Paul is worried that Christians are still doing that. Maybe in Ephesus, Paul is worried that Christians are doing that to try and get closer to God. Or maybe he's just aware that in any culture and every culture, drunkenness is a problem and a temptation. Regardless, he says, do not get drunk. And that command is still applicable to us today. Whether it's wine, any other kind of alcohol, pot, 
oxies, whether you're alone or whether you're with all your pals or whether you're with a partner that you might sin with, that is not what makes it a sin. All of those things will be sin, but it's always a sin to get drunk because even on your own in your locked bedroom, you are going into a state of insobriety and lack of self-control and that, whether you're on your own or with a whole party of pagans, that is an opportunity for debauchery. Proverbs 20 says this, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Or in chapter 23, Proverbs says this, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? That, that sounds like a bad list. Who hates their life, basically? Who has wounds without cause? Who's waking up with bruises and scratches and black eyes that they can't explain? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger over wine. Drunkenness is a sin and we all need to flee from it because it is not making the best use of our time and it is always opening up the door for debauchery, which is itself a sin, whether or not we walk through the door of debauchery or not. There's no such thing as, there's such thing as a sleepy drunk or a loud drunk. There's no such thing as a sinless drunk. Never be irresponsible with alcohol. So maturity takes care of, of themselves with substances and instead obeys God and is filled with the Holy Spirit. Every, maybe every Christmas party, you know this. Maybe family birthdays or the last 21st you went to, I don't know. But uh, there's always somebody who gets very vocal, very verbal once they get three or four forexes in, right? And, and there's some people who, who address other people. We could call it that in a very polite way. They address other people and they address the government and they speak all kinds of pretty cool but pretty kooky conspiracy theories. People start speaking when they get drunk. And it's, I think, in that sense that he says, be filled with the Spirit and address one another. Be filled with the Spirit and speak to one another, but not like you do when you're drunk. And just as the first part of the passage was telling us, be wise and here's how you get wisdom. Also, I don't think that from here on in, Paul is saying, be filled with the Spirit and then here's what Spirit-filled people do. But rather he's saying, be filled with the Spirit and here's how you get filled. So when he says, address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, he's saying, this is how you get filled with the Spirit. When he says, be thankful in your heart to God through Jesus, he's saying, this is how you get filled with the Spirit. When he says, submit to one another in reverence to Jesus, he's saying, this is how you get filled with the Spirit. He's not merely explaining another state of spirituality. He's saying, if you feel you need the Spirit, if you feel that you are languishing in your Christian life, here's how you can fix it. And I love how boring he gets. He just goes back to the same things he always says, which is the ordinary means of grace. Gather with the saints, praise Jesus, remember the gospel, read the word, do your praying, get home and get to it. That, that's what he always goes back to. And this is what he does again today. So how can I be filled with the Holy Spirit? We see here in verse 19, address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. God always commands that, his that, that a good response to, for his grace and his work is singing. We, we studied this this morning. The, the stars sung at creation. The, the saints of God sung as he saved them through David or saved them through Barak and, and Jael. He, he, he commands the singing. God loves to be sung at because he is a redeeming God. And we write songs 
We sing songs or we read the songs that he has written for us in the book of Psalms back to him. Revelation, every second time you're looking into heaven, you're seeing a congregation of people praising. Into eternity, we will be praising Jesus Christ. A spirit-filled people are a singing people. One of my, one of my favorite uh, uh, stories of this or, or pictures of this took place in 1904 in the wonderful country of Wales. And as, and as the revival broke out under the preaching and prayer of Evan Roberts, there was, this, there was this night when a bunch of coal workers had come into the back of the meeting hall and were sitting up the back and they were pretty unimpressed with, this, with what they'd heard and with the, these folks all praying. And here they are standing there, these burly men, dozens of them. And, and prompted by the spirit, Annie Davies, she stood up in front of everybody, a young, fair-skinned Welsh girl. And she sung, prompted by nothing more than the the spirit and her own creativity, she, she sung a song ad lib. It became known as the love song of the Welsh revival. We sing it here at church. It's called Here is Love. She sang, Here is love vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood, when the prince of life our ransom shed for us his precious blood. And then as if calling to the souls of the Welshmen, she said, Who his love will not remember? Who can cease to sing his praise? He can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. And in that moment, many of the men began weeping and bawling with tears down their cheeks, falling to their knees. And many of them said that that night they gave their life to Christ. In the, in the, in the midst of the revival, there were so few court sessions because no one was stealing or thieving anymore because they're all getting saved. And there was this one solitary courtroom uh, where the judge was presiding over it. And he had a young man who had embezzled money out of his employer. He'd stolen money and he'd ran off and he was caught and brought back. And the judge said to the young man in the middle of the session, son, are you a Christian? He said, no, sir, I'm not. He said, well, very soon I will talk to you as a judge, but right now I wish to speak to you as a Christian. And he said, you're a sinner and you've sinned against the law of this land, but much more, you've sinned against God. And Jesus Christ has been given for sinners such as you. And he preached the gospel to him. And the man got saved on the spot. And the judge and him uh, uh, in, in, enveloped themselves in a hug and a prayer. Meanwhile, the jury, knowing they didn't have a job to do anymore, stood up and sang the song, Here is Love, in the courtroom. A spirit-filled people are a singing people. But he is commanding, Paul is commanding us here tonight, as we love to sing, as we come to God with a, with a conviction and a discipline to sing to Jesus, he tells us that we must address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. There's some interpretations of this which basically conclude as this means psalms, other psalms, and other psalms. And they have their reasons for trying to argue that. That'll be the people with the doily on their head and the psalters uh, in their hands uh, and very small, wooden, pretty churches. But these guys are called exclusive psalmities. And, and there's, 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 there's brothers, uh, uh, obviously there are brothers, but, but they believe that basically this is just saying, and there's, there is no command in Scripture, there's no warrant to be able to sing anything other than the inspired psalms. Now, there's a hundred holes we can push in that and, and we can talk about it later. But what Paul is saying here, he uses every word in his language to basically say, sing songs, 
sing hymns, sing the Psalms, sing inspired songs from other parts of Scripture, sing Christological hymns, sing whatever we can in ways that are spiritual and truth-filled and honoring to God. He uses every, every word in his language. Uh, the word of Psalms refers almost assuredly to the book of Psalms. The language of hymns refers to, that was a more Gentile context because the Gentiles would write poems and set them to music and sing to, sing to their gods. And he says, sing hymns to Jesus. And he says, uh, also sing songs. And, and the word spiritual here almost certainly applies to all three of these. Spiritual psalms, spiritual hymns, spiritual songs. And it simply means those uh, songs and hymns to God that are led by the Holy Spirit. And of course, therefore, pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. Singing is a part of our worship to God. But on point for tonight, singing is how we get filled with the Spirit. There's no magical sort of back and forth, prid quo quo matter going on between us and God here. But Paul wants to see a relationship between those who voluntarily come and praise God are those who will in turn be filled by the Spirit for service, for holiness, and for mission. So there's that vertical component, and there is the horizontal component. Verse 19 says, address one another in these psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You're, you're encouraging each other with the words of the psalms. But also, verse uh, 20 says, give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, so our worship is horizontal, where we're exhorting one another. Our worship is also uh, uh, vertical in that we're thanking God for everything. Thankfulness has this, has this ability to change the posture of your whole life. If you're constantly thankful, as Paul said, always and for everything, if you are constantly thankful, you'll have a heart that is not going to be easily drifting towards covetousness. If you are thankful to God for all that he has given you, you will not easily have a heart that is bitter towards other people. You have more than you deserve. If you have a thankful heart, you are not easily going to be grumbling against God or stumbling into sin because you are thankful for all that God has given you. And I think especially in light of everything we've been looking at over the past five, six weeks, every sermon, every text we've looked at and every one of us has had something considerable to repent of. Every time we list these sins that Paul tells us to come away from, any honest person in our midst will say, my goodness, I'm, I'm more sinful than I thought I was. I thought I was further along. I thought I was doing great. I, I realize I've been sinning against God. And then we get to this point, say thanks to God for Jesus. And we say, amen. Praise God for his glorious grace. That's what chapter 1 verse 6 said, Jesus saved us for, to give glory to God's glorious grace. Every single one of us, whether, whether you recognize anything else, you need to recognize this. God hasn't smite you down. God hasn't sent you to hell. God hasn't abandoned you out of the family. God hasn't kicked you from his people, the church. God has still held you in salvation and given you daily, weekly, monthly, minutely grace and patience and mercy. Praise God for his mercy through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Every single one of us has something and an endless number of things to be thanking God for. And then thirdly, we are filled by the Spirit by worshiping. We are filled with the Spirit as we thank God through Jesus. And we are filled by the Spirit as we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submission to one another here means, consider that the church is the bride of Christ. 
Consider that I am a redeemed person and a slave of Christ, and then look at the church as somebody I owe my life to. I owe my obedience towards the church. I, I owe my, my obedience to God in service to the church. I owe my effort. I, I owe my prayers. I owe my giving. I, I owe my heart to the people of God in whom I take joy. These are the people of God. And therefore, as Paul says in Philippians, our mindset should be, Philippians 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look only to the interests of others, but, uh, yeah, not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is the posture towards one another. As we see each other as in need, we submit ourselves to each other and say, I'm your brother. As Cain used to say, am I my brother's keeper? We as Christians say, yeah, I owe you my help. I owe you my grace. I owe you my forgiveness. I owe you my efforts. I owe you my prayers. We are those who are indebted one to another because we are made one in Jesus Christ. And so you may not, uh, 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 I may not have debts to you. You may be offending me, but I owe Jesus Christ to, to forgive his child. I owe Jesus Christ as Lord, who I need to fear and have reverence to. I owe him to serve his church, even if she hurts me. We owe one another service and love, and therefore we submit ourselves to one another. We serve each other. Calvin said, where love reigns, there is mutual servitude. Where love reigns in our midst, there will be the willingness to serve each other and to help each other in mutual servitude. Or as Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2 said, walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. That's the example. So, how do we seek the Spirit? How do we get filled with the Spirit? If you right now want to make, want to make a, a, a strives in your sanctification, you want to be more mature, you want to be a more godly Christian, you need the Holy Spirit. How do you get the Holy Spirit? Don't get drunk. Worship God in song at church and in your family. Be thankful for His grace through Jesus Christ. And fourthly, serve your fellow Christians with the gifts that Jesus gave you. As you empty yourself, God will fill you. And lastly, do you seek wisdom? Then be careful how you walk. Discern the times as evil. Do not stumble or grumble and leverage every opportunity to live productively for Jesus Christ. That is how simple it is and we thank God for his word through Paul. But some of you are not merely seeking wisdom and seeking the spirit. That is, you're not just seeking a more mature Christianity. You need Christianity 101. You, you aren't seeking the spirit and wisdom. You first need to seek salvation. And salvation is on offer. The forgiveness of every one of your sins. A, a clean slate before God and a slate that is filled with blessings from God. Pure love from God and eternal life from God. That is all on offer in no one else other than Jesus Christ, his son. 
who he sent to this world to live as one of us, die in our place for our sins, and rise again so that you can trust in him, be made one with him, and be welcomed into heaven when you die and into eternity when he recreates that. You need Jesus Christ. If you need forgiveness, you need Jesus. If you need salvation from sin, you need faith in Jesus. If you want freedom from hell when you die, you need Jesus Christ. So place your faith in him tonight and be saved. Every one of you who do not yet believe. Let's pray. Father God, we honor you. We praise you because in our need, you speak to us simply through the words of Paul. You tell us to not live as fools, to not live unwisely, but to live wisely, to to be discerning and to live spiritually. So Father God, we simply pray that the commands of this passage would meet us and bring us into its fulfillment. Would you please, Lord God, make us wise people that listen to the wisdom of others, that watch carefully how we walk, that are able to to walk in the the tightrope that is the Christian life in these evil days when there is unrighteousness everywhere. Father God, I pray that you would enable us to be productive. You would enable us to be missional, to be sacrificial, to be like Jesus, active in this world to shine the light in the darkness. Father God, I pray also that we would be spirit-filled people, that we would acknowledge that as we come to you and we offer up praises, so you pour out your spirit into our hearts. May we be those who, who offer up hearty praises that are truly from the heart, not to impress others or not to, not to, not to simply be, a, be an, anecdote, an antidote to forget the weak, but rather, Lord, to honestly bring our sins and our weak to you, that you might give us the spirit to go out in greater maturity. Father God, would you enable us to be thankful? Would you enable us to be filled with gratitude as we consider all that you have done for us in Christ? And Lord God, may we also then live our lives in servitude towards one another, living in love and service towards each other as Jesus Christ himself was the perfect example. And in doing so, would you fill us and make us active? God, if any does not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, if there is any in our midst that are still in their sin, would you please give to them faith? Would you give to them a new heart and bring them into your kingdom? Make them one of your children and wash them clean of all of their sins. We pray all of this in the glorious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.